welcome back to the Curiosity Podcast. Today we have Andrew Blanchard. So for seven years, Andrew worked at Procter & Gamble in four different roles, and then he was a management consultant at McKinsey for a few years, building sustainable management infrastructure systems. He's now founded and is a president of Raven Tele- Telemetry, which utilizes AI for manufacturing, and he's delivering advisory and consulting services to private equity clients globally through Jacket River. Thank you so much for being here today. If you could introduce yourself, that would be awesome, and then we'll go into our question. Yeah, thanks for having me, both of you. It's uh, you know exciting to be here and, and have a chat with two young but very accomplished young women. Um, yeah, so my name is Andrew Blanchard. I uh, am from Ottawa, Canada. I've recently moved back home to Ottawa. I have a background. I'm, an, I'm a mechanical engineer. I went to school in Canada. Uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, we kind of worked in industry for a number of years, learned a few things, learned I wanted to do something a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit different, spent some time in management consulting, uh, founded a consulting firm, founded a private equity firm. You know, and uh, currently I'm uh, the interim CEO of a large infrastructure business, which is in our portfolio, which is in Mexico City. And yeah, I've got a family. I've uh, I'm happily married. I have three daughters, uh, all under the age of five. So I'm pretty busy on the home front as well. But yeah, excited to be here. Thanks again for coming. And it sounds like you have a lot going on and it's all very exciting. And our first question is actually about yourself in high school. So can you talk to us a bit about what you were like in high school and what were your aspirations like then? And then how did you start your career and get launched into this, like, I guess, really crazy world of doing a bunch of things and yeah, doing really cool stuff? Yeah. So high school is in, you know, high school, I think is an interesting time for a lot of people. Uh, You don't really know who you are and you're trying to, you know, find your way. Um, I was a good student in high school. You know, I think I was in some ways, you know, I think about this on, on two sides of the coin. I mean, I was fairly blessed that school came came pretty easy to me I was uh you know one of the nerds in the gifted program so um you know I also you know was very athletic so I played a lot of sports competitively hockey soccer football uh, martial arts I started getting into fitness kind of later in high school I played a lot of golf but yeah I mean I found high school to be an interesting you know an interesting period where nobody really tells you what the future is going to be like you know and I think looking back at high school, I know you didn't ask this question, but I actually think about this a lot. You know, looking back at high school, you're, you're trying to get good grades so that you can get into a good university. And then you go to university and you try to get good grades so that you can get a job. And then you get this job coming. And that's like this kind of uh, story that we're all told, at least in the majority of the Western world, like that's what will get you success. So you work really hard at these things and you have this prescriptive path that you're working towards in those formative years. And like you meet great people, you learn some things, but you're not necessarily looking at it in terms of like what you want and you end up in this situation where all of a sudden you're 22 to 24 years old, you've graduated, you're now all of a sudden in the workforce and you're like, what happened? And like, what's next? And I don't really have this prescriptive path in front of me anymore. Um, so, you know, when I, when I, when I think about that, and actually that time in my life gave me a lot of anxiety, quite honestly. So when I, when I look back at high school, I mean, in a lot of ways, I really enjoyed my time. Uh, I was a bit on the lazy side, quite honestly, but I also, I didn't really know what the future held for me. And when I look back on my decisions at that time and the way I spent my time, I feel like there was a lot of wasted time. You know, I feel like there's a lot of things that I could have been doing differently and I could have exposed myself to a lot more interesting things to set myself up for, you know, for more future success. Interesting. So I guess you said in high school, you were like, not necessarily 
I would say average because you're in a gifted program, you're doing a bunch of sports, but you said yourself that you were like a bit on the lazy side. So how did you start your career doing more unconventional things? Because if you look at your like, I guess, career path, you did a bunch of stuff, very unconventional, very cool. So what kind of brought you away from the conventionality and like the like normal path of uh, school? Yeah. So, you know, I think um, the early years of my career, I mean, I think I look back and there's like some really good fortune. Um, I look back on my life and there's like a handful of decisions that I find were like really critical decisions that I made that I believe put me in situations to be successful, to be uncomfortable. And, you know, there's maybe five or six of these, of these decisions that like, I really feel were transformative. One of them. And like the first one I think about was going away for university. You know, I was so close to staying home. A lot of people that grow up in Ottawa, they go to Ottawa, they go to Carleton, they live at home. And at the last minute, for whatever reason, I decided to go away for school. And I went, I went to Queens university in Kingston not that it's a better school or anything, but it was just more like getting out of the house, meeting new people and really starting to kind of discover myself, you know, to, to kind of go back to answer, really answer your question. Um, the first years of my career from like the age of probably 23 to 27, I felt like there was like, I was sold a, a bill of goods, you know, that this whole life was like, okay, you know, you do, you do this, you get good grades, you go to university, you get a good job. And all of a sudden I came out, I had a mechanical engineering job. And I had this job and I worked for Procter & Gamble, which was an amazing company. And I learned a ton there, but I was kind of like, that's it. Now I just do this for the next 35 years. That's like, that's the plan. And I had like, to me, I had a lot of anxiety around that. I mean, I think for so long in my life, like a lot of us do. And I mean, things are different a little bit now than when I was uh, going through school. You felt like there was this prescribed path and like you're kind of brainwashed in some ways to have comfort in that. And then when you get out into the real world, you realize that that's not there and you can kind of do what you want. I felt like I spun my tires, you know, for a little bit, but I did make a decision, which at the time was kind of told to me, it was not a career, a great career move, but I took an assignment within P&G in Northern England and I was running a manufacturing facility for fine fragrance. So at the time, you know, P&G was the largest manufacturer of fragrance in the world. They made all the Hugo Boss, Lacoste, Gucci, Escada for, for the globe. But again, in, in doing that, I stretched myself, I met new people, I realized I can be successful in kind of different jurisdictions, different business units. But really, you know, I think I had this feeling inside of me for a long time, it was like, there's got to be something more for me to do with my life here than just kind of do this. And there was a book I read, I remember the day I remember, like, when I read the book, the name of the books, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, it's a Robin Sharma book, I don't know if you've heard, either of you are Robin Sharma fans, but um, he's a great author, he's a Canadian author. And uh, I actually don't think it's his best book, but it there's something like clicked when I read that book that was like, okay, like, you know, nobody's going to come save you and give you the life of your dreams. Like nobody's going to show up and like, it's up to you and nobody else is going to save you, you know? So in that moment, like I started to take action towards building something that was different. Um, and at first, you know, it was really uncomfortable and I didn't know what I was doing. And I tried to like, do a bunch of stuff that didn't work but you know over time I learned and I got surrounded by different people and I took more risk you know that's kind of eventually led me to the path where I am today. I love that and I love that story you so you've done a variety of work and you've been managed as well as managed teams yourself so what are your what are your thoughts on what makes an ideal team and what makes an ideal team member? Yeah you know I think I could talk about this a lot I'm a I think I'm a student of leadership you know, uh, one of the, the fortunate, one of the many fortunate uh, items in my path that I look friendly upon is my time at PNG. I mean, PNG is an amazing school. I was leading, you know, 
200 plus people on a hundred million dollar new plant startup at the age of 23. I made a lot of leadership mistakes. I had no idea what I was doing, but um, I learned, you know, I learned a lot and I had some great mentors uh, that taught me a lot about leadership. You know, I think, I mean, there, there's a lot of material around leadership. I think Simon Sinek, you know, and, and kind of his start with why methodology is something that I've really tried to follow. And there's a lot of, you know, different, different thinking around being a great team leader and then being a great team member. Um, I think both of those things are different shades of kind of the same leadership philosophy. But at the end of the day, the great, the greatest leaders are those that put the, put the needs of the team ahead of themselves. So, you know, being a great leader is really wanting more for the greater good, wanting more for the others around you and, and really putting yourself last. Um, and that takes, you know, a lot of maturity. It takes a lot of emotional maturity. We all kind of want to be recognized and we want to take credit. We're kind of raised in, you know, our, our educational system to be individuals. And, you know, the best leaders are those that are extremely humble, care for those around them and see that the responsibility they have for the individuals and for the team, you know, is much greater than the responsibility they have for themselves. And so they put others first. I think, you know, secondly, second part of your question, what makes a great team member, right? I think at times when you're in a team, you need to know like when you should lead and when you should follow. So, you know, recently I've been, I've been put into um, this interim CEO role for a large infrastructure business. Um, it's uh, and it's been really it's been really interesting. You know, I've done some CEO roles in smaller stages. I've founded a number of companies. I've led some like large business units, but really, like as a CEO, you know, there's nobody. And aside from your board, there's nobody really looking over your shoulder. And I've had a lot of uh, you know thoughts about like what does it mean really? Like what what's your job and what am I supposed to be doing? And like what does leadership really mean? And and how do I spend my time every day? And I think I've kind of boiled it down to like I think a lot of people would say like leaders, you know, at, at the at the foundation need to make decisions. And I, I kind of disagree with that. I think like the role of the leader is to ensure that the best decisions are made. And you know, you do that by creating like open and transparent culture where people feel that they can contribute, where people feel like they can dissent the current decisions so you get, you know, where the best answers win. Um, and so, you know, to come back to it, I think being a great team member is somebody that's willing to contribute, that's willing to lead when they maybe have the potential, whether it's the capability or capacity to, to kind of lead a discussion or a decision or an action, but also be willing to, you know, put their ego aside and follow in the cases where that, you know, where that is the right decision, but so that they can, you know, achieve the best outcome for the overall team. So, yeah, but I don't know if that directly answered your question or not, but that's, uh, that's what came to mind. No, it was great. And I guess like the follow-up question to that is about people you're like hiring to work with. So when you are trying to find people to work with, what do you look for and how do you identify the people you want to work with? And then also, how do you delegate tasks accordingly to their strengths? And how do you make sure that everyone's working on what they're best at? So those are two interesting, similar questions, but, but also, you know, different in terms of, you know, the way I think about them. So recruiting, I've realized is actually very challenging. Earlier in my career, I thought I was like, oh, I'm great at recruiting people. You know, you just interview them. And then, and it's, it's actually extremely challenging. I've made a lot of bad recruiting decisions and that's okay. And I've kind of got comfortable with the fact that like those things are going to happen. You think about recruiting differently at different life cycles of a company. If you're starting a company and you're hiring employee number six, it needs to be somebody that you know, somebody that one of the founders know, has known, has touched, has worked with, has, you know, been with them 
the because your company is so fragile at that time that the character of those individuals is so important because they are wearing the name of your company on everything that they do. And the company is so fragile in those times that the character of the people that you surround yourself with is fundamental. That, that was some advice I got, which I wish I got years earlier in my life, to be honest, was that the first hundred people you hire into your company are somebody that you have known and you've worked with in the past. It's too, like, whether it is the person that's cleaning the offices or it's the head of sales, like it's somebody that you can validate their credentials. You can validate the quality of their character fundamentally. You know, I think as you grow and you work inside a larger team and you establish institutional processes and you try to get better at recruiting, I tend to always err on the side of like recruiting for heart versus recruiting for skill. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen like the simple management framework, but it's like the will skill matrix. It's a lot easier to move somebody from low skill to high skill if they have high will. It's really hard to move somebody from low will to high will really, you're going to be managing that person forever. You're going to be, instead of empowering them, you're going to be managing that. And it's not fun. You want to find people that are highly motivated. Ideally, you find high skill, high will people. But, but for me, is something I'm, I'm looking for is somebody that has like just tons of energy and wants to live and breathe the purpose of the company. And as long as they have, you know, kind of a baseline level of intelligence, you can teach them to be successful. I think the second part of your question around, okay, how do you, how do you delegate tasks to people you know, appropriately? You know, that's a complex question. Delegation is a, is, you know, a little bit of an art form. It's one of the important parts of leadership. You know, I think it's around, you know, organizational design, putting the, trying to put the people in the right roles. You're always trying to like put people into roles where they can stretch themselves. They can learn more. You want to be able to delegate tasks to them that they can achieve, but that are hard for them so that they learn. So, you know, I think one of the things I struggled with earlier in my career is that like, I never wanted anything to be less than perfect. So I just did it myself. And I would like literally push people out of the way to do work. That's not even a joke. Like I would literally like push people out of the way to like work on machines, get things running better. I think what you need to understand as a leader is like, what is an acceptable amount of failure? You know, if you're preparing uh, an investment memo, that's going to go to investors. You're not going to give it to somebody who's never done that before. And, you know, there's like a significant amount of capital on the line. It's a big decision. You're not going to do that in that situation without verifying and checking and all of the, you know, the protocols that you would need in place. So, however, if they're doing something that's like an internal document, allowing the individual to learn, to fail, to get the reps in, I think is, you know, I think is important. So it's balancing that like, okay, when is it okay to like have a less than A plus quality product and use that as a learning opportunity? And like that, that quality is probably acceptable versus like, when do we need to be world-class and then thinking about delegation through, through that lens. On the topic of recruitment, why do you think some companies like McKinsey and PNG recruit from specific schools? And what advice would you give to students looking to work in these kinds of companies? Yeah, this is like actually an important point that nobody tells you when you like choose what university you want to go to. And I think the world is changing a little bit as we go more remote and more digital that like more companies are open to recruiting people from more networks. Now, you know, McKinsey, P&G, they hire, P&G hires typically from three schools in Canada. McKinsey hires from a couple. And the answer is, is that, well, that's where the people that did the recruiting went to school. It's not like more complicated than that. It's not like, well, that's the best school and that's why they, they do it. I mean, there's an element of that potentially, you know, I think more so in the U.S. where there's a little bit more disparity between the, you know, 
potentially there's more disparity between the quality of education, you know, so you end up having like, okay, some of these schools are at least allegedly higher quality. So you try to hire from some of these schools, but you know, a lot of people and a lot of, you know, a lot of kids in high school, a lot of your listeners, you know, think about, well, I want to work in management consulting. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to do my MBA at York. Well, none of the management consultants really, you know, top tier management consultants recruit from York. It's not that York's not a good school. And like, this may be outdated, you know, this, this maybe they do recruit from York now. This is just kind of a somewhat of a uh, of an example. Now all of a sudden, your your percentage chance of getting recruited by one of these firms is like reduced significantly because they just don't do a lot of off campus uh, efforts, and it's just really hard, you know, to break into some of these places that are super competitive. So you want to do what you can to get in there. So like, I honestly think, especially in Canada, I mean, I think in the U.S. this this is not necessarily totally true, but in Canada where we have like really a pretty flat in terms of quality of education across the different schools, what you're really choosing is network so if you want to work for a certain company find out where they recruit from and go to that school you know don't you know those are the things that actually matter is really what's the quality of the network you that's what you're paying for that's what you're going for is getting the network the education at the end of the day especially today i mean even when i you know however long ago it was a long time ago when i went to university like all the materials online you can go learn i mean you can learn anything you want today for free with an internet connection so the quality of the education is actually not that important. If you have kind of the willingness to learn, you're going to get good teachers and bad teachers at every school. It's really about, okay, where do I want to go? And what is the network that I want to be a part of so I can leverage that network into future opportunities? Yeah, network is one thing people don't usually talk about when going to school and then after getting a job. And then another thing I found people don't really talk about is negotiating your salary. So when do you think it's appropriate to negotiate your salary? Will it be like your first job? Will it be like an internship? Do you think that's appropriate? And then also, what advice would you give to people that want to negotiate their salary? So I'll comment on something you just said uh, in the transition there. One of the things that just to be like, this is pretty harsh, but you work for 20, well, I guess you're not, you're not working in your early years, but you're like, you go to school for like 15 to 20 years to like go and join the workforce in some form or fashion. And everything that you do, your high school, your undergrad, the extra stuff, maybe your master's degree, it gets you one job. And then nobody cares about any of that stuff at all. And, then, and like, maybe if you went to a job and you were only there for like six months and you left, you could still leverage that previous, that previous stuff. But at the end of the day, all of, really for the most part, you get you one job. So first kind of you know you're, you're trading you like make you know you, you gather all of these cards or all of these tokens you know during your early years and you spend them all for one business card so you know that's that's a time that you need to be pretty thoughtful and and um you know that that can make make a huge impact on the next years you know on the next years of your life quite frankly i'm like honestly i like made my decision to go to like png at the time not really knowing anything not being educated and what like what does the world mean is png a good place to work is it not and i was very fortunate because of the reputation that png has because i learned a lot while i was there and i was able to leverage that you know into into a career in consulting which i had really no business going into um, you know i was a smart enough guy i could figure it out but like without you know if i had gone and worked for some other second tier company there's no way i would have had the opportunity to go to mckinsey skipping business school quite frankly so that's something, you know, something to think about. Um, Your question was around salary negotiation. Um, you know, you need to be careful in salary negotiation, right? I think uh, everybody wants to make more money. 
everybody, you know, thinks that they're worth more. I think um, you need to be able to take the emotion out of these, out of these things. Right. And really think about it objectively and be like, okay, what am I worth? What is the market paying for these roles? Um, what is my current, you know, how long have I been in the role? How long have I been here? Am I, um, am I delivering above average? Am I entitled, you know, do I believe that I deserve an increase? And then, you know, I think fundamentally, and, and, you know, you can go online, there's a lot of like really great people that teach kind of this type of salary negotiation. I'm not one of them, but I think, you know, the fundamental principle is don't ask for something until you deserve it. You know, there's nothing that frustrates me more when somebody like, you know, that to me that communicates entitlement when you're like, well, you know, I'm not working as hard as that person. I haven't done it yet, but like, I want it. And I've been here for three years. Well, you know, you will get paid for the work that you do, right? The person that delivers 10 times more, there's like an old quote, the person that delivers 10 times more than what they're paid for will eventually get paid 10 times more than what they're doing. You know, and it's like, so I find uh, don't, you know, lean in, be okay with being underpaid. Uh, at the end of the day, like, at least in this country, every extra dollar you make, half of it is going to go to the government. You get these like increases and, and people are like, yeah, I make this much money now. And like, your life doesn't really change that much. You know, maybe you buy nicer clothes or you buy a nicer car, but like really these incremental raises don't fundamentally change your life in that moment. Um, the things that really change your life are committing to being the best you can, committing to excellence, putting your best foot forward. And in those situations, you create leverage for yourself. You create, you know, you make yourself so important to the organization. And that's, that is where you want to negotiate, right? You want to be intricate to the organization and then you have leverage and you never want to negotiate without leverage. So, you know, when you think about these things objectively, I would always say like, you know, have an objective view of the market, have an objective view of what you're worth. Don't be emotional about it. You will always feel in your career, you will always feel underpaid, get over it and just work as hard as you can. Be involved in as much stuff as you can. Put yourself in a position where you can gain leverage within the organization where you're in, you know, intricately involved in things that are way outside of your direct scope of work. And from those situations, you'll, you know, you'll achieve a, a tremendous amount of success. Love it. And I noticed something you said in the first portion of your answer was that when you're young, that's the time to be thoughtful because you have so much time. So what skills do you think are important to compound earlier in life? Great question. I think, um, I don't know if I have a super intelligent answer off the cuff, but, you know, I think people that are successful have like a couple of, you know, foundational capabilities or skills. You know, I could answer the question through the lens of like, well, you know, it's 2021. People need, need to know how to code. People need to know how to research. You need to know how to assimilate information quickly. Those things are all, you know, are all true. Right. And I think like, if you're going to learn something, go learn how to code. I think that's like a, a super important, you know, task. Uh, you know, I think like engineering, I'm obviously biased, but I think like for me, engineering was a great education because like it was just kind of teaching you how to learn, teaching you know, like how to break down like systems and understand how they're supposed to work together, where they were, whether they were mechanical, electrical, computer science. And that like is a great skill is like is problem solving, right? So when I, when I think about, you know, the, the, the three kind of most important skills that successful people have at least what I've seen is one is like tremendous ability to problem solve 
So being able to like walk into a situation, you've never seen it before, and being able to, to break down that problem into its fundamental components, identify the components, identify which components not working, what's the countermeasure, what's the root cause, how do you rebuild it? That that skill set is is foundational to people that are, you know, that are successful. They're able to kind of, and those people, right, that are great problem solvers, they're able to filter through massive amounts of data and understand what what was what was important, what wasn't important. I think you know that goes to my second my second point is um is capacity. At the end of the day, I think like people that are successful have a huge capacity for work. They're able to get through more faster. I think if you look at like some of the things about like Warren Buffett, it, you know his one. I think I'm gonna get this wrong, but one of his, if not his number one key to success, is like reading quickly. And then you're like, well, why reading quickly? Why is that important? It's like, well, if you can ingest 20% more information every day than the next person day after day for your entire life. I mean, that compounds at an enormous rate. So being able to like have a large capacity for work, being efficient, creating systems in your life so that you're, you know, focused and uh, executing at a high level, you bring high levels of energy, you, you know, you reduce non-value added work, all of those types of things. And then I think third is being a tremendous communicator, you know, working on your communication skills, written, uh, speak, spoken, multiple languages. I think something that I wish I invested more time into earlier in my life was learning more languages. I'm currently learning Spanish. I find it terribly hard, to be honest. Um, I feel like the language centers in my brain are filled and there's no additional space, but communication is so, un, you know, it's underrated. I mean, it's so important. People really understand you and you understand them it's a, it's a really powerful thing. So that's, uh, those are the three things that I think are, you know, my, uh, my kind of skills or capabilities that are, you know, foundational to success. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I want to circle back to problem solving and how specifically you choose to problem solve. So when you're tackling, let's say a very big problem and trying to identify a root cause, are there any specific reoccurring approaches you take to break down a problem into smaller components and then systematically solving it? Yeah, you know, I think you you become over time, you know, especially like working in consulting is a great is a great way to like have to solve problems quickly. But you do, you know, sometimes you, you develop a great skill, but it's also sometimes a trap, which you know we kind of call in that industry, you know, uh, pattern recognition, where you know you've seen these things and you kind of know what the answer is, or you think you know what the answer is, right? And I think that at times can really short circuit the problem solving uh, framework, but it also or problem solving process, but it can also, you know, be a trap because the data that's presented potentially leads you, you know, leads you to an assumption that is incorrect. You know, I think pretty, you know, to, to kind of walk through the way I think of it is really, you know, the first thing you always think about is like, is this a problem? I think that's something a lot of people, you know, worry about. And I, we dealt with, I dealt with this yesterday. I had like a crisis call at like 8 p.m. Somebody was dealing with something and like, the reality was it wasn't a problem. It wasn't worth solving, right? So first thing you want to think about is like, is this problem worth solving? Is this really a problem? Yes or no, you know? And I think that's something we, we forget. We forget to think about sometimes. And I think it's, you know, defining what is the problem statement? You know, and, and there's some different tools that are out there you can use. There's like a 6W2H form, which is like uh, very common, but like, you know, if you want to use that and you want to be really formal, but like, okay, what is the problem I'm trying to solve and defining the problem? I think then the next step high level is like, what are the components of that problem? It's very hard to solve a problem when, um, 
you know, there's a number of different variables that are interacting with each other. And whether it's a human problem or a mechanical problem or a code problem, it's trying to, you know, identify at the component level, okay, where is the problem? And then, you know, I'm a big proponent of like hypothesis-based problem solving. So like, instead of like trying to solve the problem with data, which sometimes can take forever, is to test your hypotheses. So based on the different components that you potentially think could be failed or you have identified that are failed, you can then with a number of hypotheses, run a series of tests to understand if you found the correct failure. And then once you have, you can rebuild, you can rebuild the solution appropriately. And then you put countermeasures in place so that it doesn't happen again. I think for the most part, you can kind of follow that. It's you know a little bit different if you're dealing with like a human problem. There's like some some challenges there and emotions and humans are sometimes hard to deal with but for the most part that framework works i think uh, most of the time that that is a great framework thank you for walking us through that and something i wanted to ask you about are there are a lot of people who think that grinding 24 7 is a good way to achieve results but then that can often result in burnout so you know, when people are hanging out with their families, they're on their phones, they're not really present. When they're out, they're taking calls. So something you're really great at is compartmentalization. So how do you compartmentalize to maintain that balance? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you saying I'm great at that. I'm not sure I am. Um, I work a lot um, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes too much. But so... Huh. This, I mean, I could talk about this a lot. I'll try to be succinct uh, with my response, but there's a lot of things that come to mind. So how do you avoid burnout? I mean, if you want it, my view, I'm like not the smartest person in the room. I'm just not. Uh, you know, I talked with like my business partner and we were like sharing different books. And last year I, uh, I had read The Man Who Solved the Market. I don't know if you guys uh, have, have read that book, but it's basically about the start of kind of quant investing um, and a gentleman that basically has you know uh, developed an ability to use advanced math to kind of create outsized returns. I was talking with the book with Tom, and we're like chatting about it. And he's like, he's like, that's a dumb book for you to read. I mean, you're not a genius. You're gonna read that book. Like, what are you gonna do? You're gonna say, just be a genius. Like, it's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna happen. Where, you know, if you read one of my my favorite books is the story of Phil Knight, which is Shoe Dog, which is more like somebody that I, I identify with more. Not that I compare myself to him at all, but it's like somebody that like his edge was like his ability to never give up and to like continually push through you know a, an amazing amount of challenges so for me at least in my profile and I think most people in the world like you, you're gonna have to work hard and I work really hard one of the things I think a lot about is like reducing the switching cost in your life so being able to switch in and out of work mode quickly and without it draining you being able to like build mechanisms so that you can create separation. You know, we're all working from home a lot right now. So that when I leave my office and I'm with my kids, I try to switch off. I'm not great at it. I still at times, you know, I get pulled back in, but you know, the things that I find work, you know, well for me is, um, so one, I try to make sure that I'm spending my time really effectively every day. I don't want to waste any of my time. I don't have that much of it. You know, at the end of the day, like I'm 38 years old and like, I feel like I don't have that much of it left. You know, my kids are growing up. I work a lot of hours. So uh, I want to achieve a lot of things in my life. So I want to be really, really organized with my time. Um, if I'm doing stuff, like I actually have on my phone lock screen, this saying that says like, is this moving the needle? And the way I think of it is like, if this is not moving, like my business, my family, my health, or my finances forward, I don't do it. 
So then from that kind of mindset, I outsource a lot of stuff that I don't want to do. And like, I have a way that I think about that. Like, what is the time value of money? What can I outsource and what can I insource? What are the things that I want to be spending my time on? And then, you know, I use my time. I, I, one of the, you know, other principles that like I find is extremely helpful for me is what I call task matching. So, you know, I, um, I work out at least six times a week. I, you know, I eat well, I prioritize my sleep. I'm like pretty, uh, pretty focused on maintaining great health. And the main reason is because it allows me to bring a tremendous amount of energy to my work. But even with all the crazy stuff I do, I mean, I'm doing cold showers, intermittent fasting, all kinds of weird stuff. But um, I get maybe, maybe four great hours a day. Maybe if I'm lucky, four great hours of my best self every day. You know, what do most people do when they first start their work day? Sit down with their computer and they start doing email. You know, like, so if I only have four hours a day that I can be in first gear or in fifth gear, you know, full performance. And for me, those hours are usually first thing in the day. Why would I, you know, do the lowest priority or the stuff that I can do when I'm like, from a cognitive load standpoint, is, is a significant, excuse me, significantly lower stress. So I try to match those times when I'm best with doing the hardest work. And that, you know, allows me, I think, to get a lot more done over the course of the day. And then, you know, the stuff that still needs to get done, but maybe it's a bit more mechanical, you know, lower cognitive load. I can do that in the evening, kind of when I'm in first gear, when I'm kind of taking it easy. I could be sitting with my wife. You know. That didn't really answer your question, you know, in terms of compartmentalizing. Uh, I actually don't, you know, I don't really believe I had his boss early in my life that said, like, he didn't believe in work-life balance. And I was like, man, this guy's crazy. But um, it's kind of true. You know, you, there's very few people that I've met that are like super successful in personal life and not successful in their professional life and vice versa. You got to make it all work. You got to like make, make it work and find ways to, you know, integrate the things that are important in your life first. I think, you know, at the end of the day, this is probably my best advice in this is create the constraints that are most important to you first. And then you work in the remaining space. So like the way I think of it is I create this box and there's the boxes, four walls. And those four walls are my family my health, my sleep, and my hobbies. And those are the things that like create the constraints that I'm going to put in my life. And I'm like, these are the things that I need to be my best self to have the highest level of energy to be healthy and to be happy. And then everything on, left on the inside, I'm going to work and prioritize like crazy and work as hard as I possibly can. It doesn't mean I don't go outside the box at times, but at least I have that box defined. And it's like, I know it's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to sleep less tonight because I need to get this thing done and I want to read this thing. But then it's a conscious choice and I do it once or twice. I think the, the, the trap a lot of people fall into and they feel that they lose control over the situation is when they try to operate their lives based on a to-do list. And, and as you realize, you get more and more going on in your life and you, then you start getting personal to-do lists, kids and everything. The to-do lists don't end. It's a never-ending tool. It's, it's, it's crazy, you know? And like some of us, like myself, I'm like a super strong J for if you guys are Myers-Briggs fans, like I'm a super strong J. So like, I, there's nothing more that I love in my life than to-do lists and crossing stuff off of my to-do list. But if you live your life that way, the to-do list never ends. And so what ends up happening, if I go back to my weird analogy with the box, is you push past the outsides of the box constantly. And then you stop doing the things that are making you your best self. You don't sleep enough. You don't take care of your health. You don't eat properly. You don't spend time with your loved ones. So then the next day, you get a little bit less done because you're not any better. So that to-do list gets a little bit longer. And that continues over time until it creates resentment, it creates apathy, and you, you end up being somebody that you don't want to be. So 
when you realize like the to-do list never ends, it's not going to end, you know, and you think about it kind of from the opposite side and you say, okay, look, I'm going to, I'm going to work a lot. It's going to be all within this box though. And I'm not going to go outside the box and I'm going to be happy because of it. Uh, it's a bit of a mindset shift, but it's, you know, that for me is what it has kind of enabled me to, I guess, compartmentalize to kind of go back to the initial question. Wow. I love that answer and that analogy. And it's like so important to like define your values, I would say, and then like understand how you can like live your best life in your career and then also like have a good life. And then because of that, you can like do both at the same time. So really great answer. And we're getting close to the ending of this podcast. So what we like to do is we like to have like a quick speed round and we're going to ask you like a few questions and you're just going to like answer, what would you rather like option A or option B? And we have a more of a career theme with you. So I guess we can jump right into it. So when making decisions, uh, I guess fast, do you trust your gut if you have a strong gut feeling or do you go with the numbers, even if it's against your gut feeling? I mean, if I got to pick one gut. Next question, Notion or Google Drive? Uh, I'm going to go neither. Oh, what do you use? What do I use for just like cloud storage? Yeah, yeah, like writing notes and like typing things up to share with other people. I mean, so I mean, I'm pretty traditional, right? Like the typical, like, so I'm out, Outlook, Microsoft products. I use Notability, iPad. Um, mm-hmm, that's good. Yeah, wow. you get into like, there's like a, the industry, like at least in, in management consulting has like a very disciplined way of working. And like anybody that's been at one of these firms that like then goes into tech and tries to like, you know, is trying to use Google Drive goes totally crazy. Cause like Google, I, I hate Google Drive. It unformats everything, nothing works. Then people start using like Google Sheets and like, like just get Excel, you know, it doesn't work properly. It never works. Like it makes me, it, that those types of things make me like super, super crazy. You know, some of the startups we work, somebody sends me like a Google Sheet. It's not sent to the right email. You can't get access to it. You go in, like none of the hotkeys work for Excel anyways. Sorry, then was supposed to be a speed round, but <laughs> I guess the other one is when presented with a new opportunity, do you say yes and maybe spread yourself too thin? Or do you say no and potentially limit your serendipity? Today, I say no. Uh, I think my few my earlier self I would have probably said said yes, but I think like something that, and sorry again, I know it's supposed to be a speed round, but something I feel strongly about is like you know, if you listen to like these like business coaches and mentors be like, oh, you need to learn to say no, learn to say no. Like you both, and I mean, you are both extremely high achievers. Uh, and so maybe this comment is not fair to you, but like you, I, I can almost guarantee you, you'll, you look back on your life and you'll be like, I had so much time back then. What was I doing? I had so much time because you keep finding ways to get like more and more efficient. And then all of a sudden, you know, you'll have kids, you have kids to deal with, you know, you get married, you do like, you know, whatever you do with your life, you just keep adding stuff in and you get more and more efficient. So I think like, to me, like when you're young, say yes to everything. I think like the people that tell you to say no, I have no idea what they're talking about. Like probably only until recently, I've actually had to be like, okay, I need to start saying no to stuff. But like my, I think like one of the things that have like brought me so much joy and so much opportunity is just like saying yes to things like saying yes to stuff that like I have no idea like saying yes like I don't know how to do this whatever yes will you go do this like what's the worst thing that happens you know I mean I think when you're young and you have capability and opportunity you should say yes to everything 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 and then you know now at a point in my life where like okay I'm really I have a lot going on I need to prioritize where I'm spending my time 
I've learned to say no to the things that I believe to be non-priority, but I believe saying yes early in your life is like, is actually really important. Oh, that's really interesting, actually. Okay, moving on to the next question. Um, In-person work or remote? In-person. Okay. Uh, Do you guys, do you know what like Pomodoro technique is? Yeah, of course. Okay, perfect. Um, so would you rather do that technique or would you rather like get things done in one sitting and just push through? I, I like the Pomodoro technique. I think, it's, I think it actually works really well. Um, I'm a fan. I use it almost every day. Awesome. Tea or coffee? Tea. Zoom call or Google Meet? Zoom. Paper or online notes? I like to write. So, but I do, I've switched recent, well, in the last couple of years, I've, I've gone to like an iPad with a, with a pen. Uh, I do like writing on paper. Ideally, I would always write on paper, but I, uh, it's un, it becomes unmanageable, you know, especially when you're traveling as much as I used to travel and like you run out of books, you run out of pages, you're like, you get home from a week, you have like 85 pages of notes, it's all over the place. So the reason I like to write though, is I find it's, there's still a stigma when you're sitting in a meeting with someone. And if you have your laptop open and you're typing, people think you're, you're disrespectful. Whereas if you're writing, if you're physically writing, people think you're paying attention, and you're attentive to them. So to me, that's actually really important being in a leadership role. Like I never want to show people that I'm alienating. So I always, I always write in a meeting and never, I never type. Interesting. And then last quick question, a uh, paper or whiteboard for brainstorming? Whiteboard. Love it. Those are the end of our questions. But before we end off, would we be able to get three action items from you for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to close the uh, close the podcast. You know, I think I'll, I'll kind of say it. I'll, I'll say these these three things. I mean, read. Read a great book, you know, find a great book and sit and read it. Don't listen to it. Don't e-read it. Like get a physical book and and take the time and read it. I've like gone like almost entirely to ebooks and or sorry to audiobooks, uh, but I still always keep a physical book that I'm reading. And um, something about you know the value you get of reading a physical book, it blocks out the noise, and I think it's like so great for our minds. Like it teaches you to focus, and it allows your brain to kind of escape which is really hard, you know, really hard to do, you know, these days. And you don't get that experience by, by doing an audiobook. And I'm a huge fan of audiobooks, but I think, you know, find a great book. I'm happy to give lots of book recommendations, find a great book and, and read, you know, I think that's a, a lifelong skill. I wish I did a lot more of it when I was younger, you know, two, I would say uh, a lot of success is about habits. I would say, you know, instill, instill a great habit. So something I've started doing, you know, I, I, like I'm not, I don't want to take a ton more of your listeners time here, but I, uh, I've been doing over the last kind of 10 or 12 years, like an annual objective setting. And then I have like a monthly review and I do daily, anyways, I do this whole process around like, you know, trying to kind of constantly stretch myself across all the different forms of my life incurring, you know, including my health, my fitness, my personal life, my relationship with my wife, my, my professional goals, all of these types of things. And, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of times where I wasn't making progress. And I, the places I wasn't making progress was because I didn't have, I didn't have the right habits in place. And what I've realized is like, you know, the goal is one thing, but if you don't have the daily habit to enable those things, you're not going to, you're not going to really get anywhere because you're not going to take action towards that item. So 
every year I think about like two, three or four different habits I want to, you know, instill in my life. And like what I've realized is that you only have like this finite amount of willpower. And if, you know, you constantly want to basically be making yourself better and you do it by using that willpower to like grab a new habit and instill it into who you are. And then you do that and then you can go get the next one. And I think like those things that then become part of you and define who you are, are like effortless. So I would say, think about a habit that is really important to you and that you want to be that type of person and take three months and instill that habit, do it every day, do it no matter what, you know? One of the recent ones I did is like cold showers. So I've taken a cold shower every day for like 700 days in a row. And like now I can't take a shower without it. Like I, like I just love like the, the, the feeling and then, you know, it's become kind of part of my routine. So that would be my second one. You know, my third is do something, you know, and, and like this is super high level and not a great recommendation, but like do something that makes you uncomfortable. There's a, you know, there's a great rule by Robin Sharma where he says, if uh, there's, you have two options, always pick the scary one. So, you know, do something every day, do something every week that makes you uncomfortable. Talk to somebody that you don't know, reach out to somebody, set up a meeting, have a coffee with somebody that you're not, you know, that isn't in your network, learn, learn a skill that you don't, you didn't know that you could learn. I think that doing those things takes the energy away from, you know, being scared. And uh, the more that we can teach ourselves that we're capable, the more things that we'll do with our, uh, you know, with those capabilities. So great. those are great action items. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us again. Thank you both. I appreciated the time.